book of Acts, and last time we got most of the way through chapter 15, which is the Council in Jerusalem. And you will remember that the question at the Council in Jerusalem is that there was a party of Messianic Jews. They are believers in Yeshua, but they are former Pharisees, and they are of the opinion that Gentile converts have to be circumcised and have to follow the laws of Moses. And Paul and Peter are of the opinion that that's not the case. We talked last time, this whole sequence lights off with Peter and the sheep. When Peter is in Caesarea, I think is where he was, she's hungry, he gets a vision of the sheep and tells the angel or the voice that He's never eaten anything like that. And he gets told that what God has declared clean, you don't declare unclean. And then at that point, the messengers from Cornelius show up. And he says, ah, I understand. And he goes down and preaches to Cornelius, who is a Roman citizen. He's a centurion. And during that process, the Holy Spirit lands on the Gentiles, which kind of freaks everybody out. Peter then goes back to the council in Jerusalem and they all start upbraiding him for going into a Gentile's house. And he recounts the business with the vision and he says the vision lets me know that what God has declared clean, which is to say Gentiles who have received the Holy Spirit, we are not to call unclean. And it has nothing to do with Jews all of a sudden got to eat pork chops. That is not the case. So what you have with Peter's vision is this idea that Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God are not bound by the dietary restrictions because they come in completely with bacon bread. So then they're in Antioch and some of the former Pharisees come from Jerusalem and say, well, all these Gentiles who got the Holy Spirit need to be circumcised and follow the law. At which point, Peter and Paul mount up, and they said, let's go back to the home office, and we'll get this thrashed out. So they all go back to Jerusalem, where we have the Council of Jerusalem with James, Yeshua's brother, presiding. Peter makes an impassioned plea, and he also recounts again the business with the sheep. And the Council at Jerusalem says, for Gentiles who are coming into the church, and I will read it for you. Acts 15, verse 27. This is the letter they sent. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, Farewell. So the way I have always heard this taught, which makes sense to me, is these are sort of the minimum requirements not to gross out Jews so you can come into the synagogue and you can listen to the Torah. In other words, the synagogue is where the books are. So if these new believers are going to get the scriptures, they got to go to the synagogue because that's where the books are. And this is sort of the minimum requirement to come into the synagogue and have table fellowship and hear Moses read. Blood can mean any of several things. Blood is, of course, 
forbidden for human consumption. You can't eat blood. And that's in the Torah. Blood will render you ritually unclean. So a woman in her menses, someone who has a discharge, or any of those kinds of things, will render you unclean. So when it says refrain from blood, not quite sure what is meant there. Certainly, at a minimum, you don't get to eat blood pudding and blood sausage, which you can buy all over Europe if you want to. But it may also extend to the laws of purity with respect to the tabernacle. I just don't know. Jewish dietary laws say that in order for an animal to be usable for human consumption, it must be killed and its blood must be spilled on the ground which they interpret to mean, in the case of a domestic animal, that its throat must be slit and it must be bled out. In the case of if you're hunting deer or something like that, which is also mentioned in scripture, uh, you basically pour its blood out on the ground once you've killed it and cover it over with dirt. But the point is, you are not allowed to consume blood. An animal that is killed by strangulation is not bled. So if you get an animal that is killed in some way other than having its throat cut or being killed in a hunt and then bled on the spot, then it is not suitable for human consumption. And the Jews who were taking this letter up to the church in Antioch, I am sure, sat down and we had all these conversations just like we're having right now. Because... The church in Antioch is Gentile, and they don't know any of this stuff. So just like you asked, what does it mean strangled? I am sure somebody at the church in Antioch asked exactly the same question, and they got more or less the same answer I just gave you. I am sure also somebody asked the question about blood. I don't know what answer they got, because it's a broader subject than just diet. But I'm sure that there was a discussion just like we're having right now, and the Jews that were carrying the letter down would have elaborated on it. So now all the way down to verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. I am reasonably certain that Judas and Silas were able to answer all of the detailed questions, some of which I don't have the answer to. Verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So you remember that in their first missionary journey, Mark was with him and he bailed early on in the journey and, and came back. This obviously aggravated Paul. So when they're getting ready to go again, Barnabas wants to take John Mark again with them, and Paul says, absolutely not. Verse 39, And there arose a sharp disagreement 
so that they separated from each other. In other words, Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Paul said, absolutely not. So they decided to go separately. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Silesia, strengthening the churches. Pause here for a minute. Remember Barnabas, his name literally means son of the father. It also means son of encouragement. Barnabas is an encourager, and he showed up in a number of cases. He always seems to show up where there's some sort of personnel problem, and he is able to smooth things over and bring peace to the situation. What he does with John Mark is Paul, who is a Benjaminite, and Benjaminites are sort of like Levites. They tend to be kind of black and white, uh, which Paul is. And Paul says, I'm not taking this guy. He took him once. He bailed on me. I'm not doing that again. Barnabas, on the other hand, being an encourager, wants to, shall we say, salvage John Mark. I believe this is the same guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. So he's sort of got a black mark on his record because he bailed out on the first missionary journey. Paul's given up on him, and Barnabas steps in, and Barnabas takes him under his wing, and Barnabas then takes him off to Cyprus on their own missionary journey. And this is very much consistent with Barnabas's character. He's an encourager. He's someone who builds people up. So for him to take John Mark under his wing and say, all right, come on, let's go give you another chance here, is perfectly in line with the character that he shows throughout the book of Acts. Every time you see him, he's doing something like that, which is why he gets all the hate in the book of Acts, something for others to emulate. Chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were there in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Circumcision is going to come up lots of times here in the New Testament. It comes up here, it comes up in the book of Galatians, and the question is always, when you come into the kingdom of God, you need to be circumcised. There are those who say that circumcision is done away with. And I will take you right to this passage of scripture and say, no, it's not. For Jews, it is still the sign of the covenant. And Paul circumcises Timothy. His mother was Jewish, which according to Jewish law means that he's Jewish. The children go with the father, but there's been so many invasions and whatnot that the only one you can really be sure of is the mother. So in Judaism today and here, if you have a Jewish mother, you're a Jew, as far as the Jews are concerned. So Timothy being known as a Jew by those standards, if he is not circumcised, will compromise Paul's witness. But the idea that circumcision has somehow been done away with after the cross is not correct. We'll have a similar situation later where he picks up Titus, who is of the same age as Timothy. Titus, however, is Gentile on both sides, 
and Paul makes no intimation whatsoever that he be circumcised. All very consistent with the Council of Jerusalem. Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to come into the Council of God. Jews need to be circumcised because it's a sign of the covenant. As I say, it has not been done away with. Verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So one of the things that they are doing is they're going back through churches they've already planted. And the genesis of this business with the council in Jerusalem is there was a church that had been planted in Antioch. You had some Jews that came up from Jerusalem and were causing confusion by saying you must be circumcised. So what Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing is they're going through these churches that they had planted before and they're saying, here is the decision from the council in Jerusalem. Don't let anybody come here and tell you that you have to be circumcised. And of course, we know from the book of Galatians that that very thing had happened in the church in Galatia, where Paul had gone through, planted a church, and then these people from the circumcision party had come after him and had sown confusion in the church in Galatia. And quite frankly, I have no idea, just off the top of my head, whether the book of Galatians is before or after the Council of Jerusalem. I I just don't remember. Because remember, Paul has been to Jerusalem at least twice. Remember, Paul in the book of Galatians says, I went to the elders in Jerusalem and told them what I was doing, and they said, you're doing the right thing. The only thing we can add to what you want to do is you ought to collect relief money for the believers here in Jerusalem, which thing I was anxious to do. But other than that, they said, everything you're doing is fine. Now, what I don't know, since he has been there twice, is which time that was. So I don't know where the Council of Jerusalem falls with respect to the letter to the Galatians. As I say, what they're doing now is they're going back through the churches they went through, either as a result of what happened in Galatia, or just preemptively, and they are explaining to all of the Gentile churches that circumcision is not a requirement. Verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Yeshua would not allow them. Bithynia is up on the northern coast of Turkey. I think it's between the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. I didn't actually look it up, but it's up on that passage, if you will, into the Black Sea from the Mediterranean. It's up there. Verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, Macedonia is the northern part of Greece. You've got Italy, and over here then you've got Greece, which is a whole bunch of islands and some mainland. Then east of Greece, you've got Turkey. So as you have this Aegean Sea, with hundreds of islands. At the top of that is Macedonia, which is where Alexander the Great came out of, by the way. Verse 11. 
So setting sail from Troas, they made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. Stop a second. Do you notice that the pronouns have changed? The pronouns are now we. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and the pronouns have now changed. They have been they. You know, they went, they did, they did. Now it has become we, which indicates to me that Luke has joined the trip. So anyway, they go to Philippi, and they've gone out to a riverside where there's supposed to be a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, I don't have any idea why the women have come together there. It could be any number of reasons. It could be where you wash your clothes, or it could be where you draw water, or it could be a nice place to sit on a Saturday afternoon. Anyway, there is a gaggle of women down there, and so they spoke to them. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She's obviously a merchant lady, and she is come from Thyatira to Philippi, and she's there to sell purple cloth. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, that sounds like a pretty good barker to me. I mean, if you're looking to draw a crowd and preach the gospel, this little pagan girl seems to be doing a good job. Verse 18, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Yeshua Messiah to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So Paul and Silas have messed up their livestock. Obviously this gal was making them a lot of money. And Paul has messed that up, and now she is no better than a random servant girl. I don't know what kind of a servant girl she was, whether she was a good servant or a bad servant, but whatever that is, that's what she is now because she no longer has a spirit of divination. Verse 20, And when they had brought them to the magistrate, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Romans didn't particularly care who you worshipped, as long as you didn't scare the horses. They were primarily interested in civil authority. 
And as long as the empire was peaceful, they didn't care who you worshipped. So the charge against these guys is by their espousing this strange god, they're causing unrest, and unrest is the thing that the Romans don't care for. It doesn't say, however, whether the magistrates are Roman, because the magistrates may in fact be local town judges. And you remember the thing that they had against Yeshua was he's fomenting rebellion here. And if he succeeds in fomenting a rebellion, the Romans are going to come down upon us and we will lose what autonomy we have because we'll be up to our hips in Romans. And so that was the basis of Yeshua's crucifixion. That's also the basis of the charge against Paul and Silas. They're disturbing the peace. As I say, it isn't clear at all what the pedigree of the magistrates is. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, I don't know what kind of an earthquake unfastens bonds, but obviously this is a miraculous event. And of course it mirrors what happened to Peter when he was in the jug in Jerusalem. And you remember what happened to the jailer. The jailer was questioned under torture to find out what had happened to Peter. And when Peter was not able to be covered, found, whatever, the jailer was put to death. But he was put to death in a very unpleasant process. So anyway, we have a mirror of that event here where I am firmly convinced that the Holy Spirit is the one that caused the earthquake and the Holy Spirit is the one that popped the shackles off of everybody. Because as I say, your typical earthquake may pop doors open, but it typically doesn't unlock shackles. Verse 27. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And again, we have the vignette in here with Peter so that we understand the gravity of the situation that the jailer is facing here. He's going to die one way or the other. Killing himself is a whole lot easier way to go than being questioned severely about what happened to the prisoners before you die. You're dead either way. It's just there are harder ways to get there than taking your own life. 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Yeshua, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set the food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that had believed in God. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. 
Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. So at this point, Paul realizing, A, that they've got nothing against him, and B, that they have manhandled a Roman citizen, is at this point got the upper hand and he's not going to let it go. He apparently learns from this because when he gets manhandled in Jerusalem at the temple, he immediately says, I'm a Roman citizen. And the Roman army steps in and saves him from being lynched in that case. I'm sort of noticing as I go through it this time, and I hadn't really realized it before, you have these vignettes in pairs. You have one to sort of set it up, and then several chapters later, you'll have sort of the same situation happen again. And that seems to happen frequently here in the book of Acts. Verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The behavior of the magistrates here is the thing that sort of gives me the idea that perhaps the magistrates are not Roman magistrates. In other words, they're not imperial magistrates. They're not part of the Roman hierarchy. They're much like the temple authorities are in Jerusalem. They're local guys. The county mounting instead of the state patrol. So when they realize what they've done, they themselves, not being Roman officials, say, oh, shoot, we've screwed up here. I think that's what's going on. It doesn't say that explicitly. Chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolos and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to raise from the dead, and saying, this Yeshua, whom I have praying for you, is the Messiah. Now, several times ago, one of the things that I said is the reason that God chose Paul is because Paul is a learned man. Do you remember when Stephen was being stoned? Stephen did a fast recitation of the history of Israel. And in that process, he made some mistakes. For example, he said that our ancestors are buried in Shechem. That's not true. They're buried in Hebron. So there are a number of mistakes in the accounting of the history that Stephen made as he was about to be stoned. Now, you can look at it one way. is You're staring with a whole bunch of guys throwing potatoes up in the air you might get tongue-tied and nervous. And that's perfectly understandable. The other possible explanation is Stephen was not an educated man. And like Peter, for example, who was a fisherman, he wasn't a scholar. He sort of remembered what he learned in Shabbat school as a kid, but he's not really a scholar. Paul is a scholar. And Paul is able to get into the scriptures with the rabbis in the synagogue and duke it out with them on their level, which is why I think Paul was picked by God, Yeshua, for this particular mission, is because he was 
well enough educated that he could not be dismissed as an ignorant fisherman from Galilee. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And again, remember, we talked about this a time or two ago. One of the things that was common, it's common in every society, wealthy women, in the days before women's liberation, when women could go out and be bakers and lawyers and Indian chiefs, they ran their household, and most of them would have a staff and a stable of servants, which means that they had free time. And one of the things that was fashionable for them to do would be to go to the synagogue and learn about this Judaism stuff. Much like you'll have wealthy women today go learn about Buddhism or go learn about you know, something exotic so that they have something interesting to talk about at cocktail parties. So this is the second mention that we have had of leading women being involved. And of course, from the synagogue perspective, pulling these leading women away and into the way takes away a source of revenue. Because one of the things that these women have are a lot of resources, and for them to come into the synagogue and sit and study and and, learn about Judaism and all this stuff, they would have brought with them tithes and offerings. So now I'm down to verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now Jason is the, yeah, I think he's the head of the synagogue. But anyway, he's harboring Paul and Silas. The thing that the Jews are jealous about, I am going to suggest to you, is the siphoning off of the leading women, and with them, the offerings that the leading women would bring into the synagogue. There's an economic thing here. Verse 6, And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Yeshua. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. In other words, Jason is out on bail, is what that amounts to. And again, notice that the charge is fomenting unrest, revolution, proclaiming that Caesar is not the true king, etc., etc. Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Notice, Greek women of high standing. So we have this same phenomenon. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there also agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to them, as soon as possible, they departed. The next thing is going to be 
Paul in Athens, and I want to spend more than 10 minutes on that. So I will stop here. Et ta